From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Biden administration will review the Defense Department's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. DOD spokeswoman Jessica Maxwell tells FedScoop the review is to make sure the program's effective and isn't a barrier to companies dealing with the Pentagon. The department didn't offer details on the review or exactly what it was reviewing. The Army has learned its lessons from the future combat system and won't make the same mistakes again, according to the commander of Army Futures Command. General Mike Murray says the Army's experimenting with technology to see what's possible first before it writes requirements. Breaking defense reports, Murray says the difference now is the Army has humility in the development process instead of hubris. The biggest competitive threat to the Defense Department's obsolescence, according to the director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, Lieutenant General Michael Groen says commercial technology can do things Pentagon technology can't. Defense News reports Groen says that gap will prevent the military from being competitive and winning. President Biden hasn't named an acquisition leader for the Pentagon yet. When the Senate confirms that nominee, the next Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment will need to make sure acquisitions at the department can keep up with China's military modernization. Chris Doherty's senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, former senior advisor to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development, and writing under the title, Want an Agile Pentagon? Don't go chasing waterfalls at Defense One. You got me with the TLC reference. I, I, I went back to my top 40 DJ days immediately upon seeing this. You write about the strategies that the Pentagon puts out every four years, Chris, and then you write, there's a better way to manage complex processes like these and some Pentagon and congressional staff know it. Why don't they use agile development method more than they do, Chris? The bottom line, I think, is that it just goes against the grain of what they've done their entire careers. Um, there is an enormous amount of inertia in a lot of these processes. I mean, there, there are some legal and, and fiscal constraints. I do think that uh, the legal requirement to put out a uh, president's budget submission every year and an NDAA every year causes a sort of yearly cyclical process. And there is a legal mandate to put out a strategy review every four years. That's you know the, the, the law that mandated the quadrennial defense review. But between that, there's nothing to say that the department can't manage its processes in a much more agile fashion. Um, and there's nothing that says that the, the quadrennial defense review you know, has to take a year to a year and a half and has to produce this enormously elaborate document. Um, there's nothing to say that a new team can't just come in and say, okay, here are our initial priorities. Here's our update of the national defense strategy, much like the administration has done with the national security strategy, I might add. Um, there's nothing to say that they can't do that. A lot of these restraints are internal uh, and cultural rather than legal or, or, um, or requirements. What is striking to me about your proposal, Chris, is that at least in software development, the department has a lot of demonstrations of success of this strategy over the past three, four, five years. It's working, and so it strikes me that this would be a, an easy transition in the policymaking and strategy development uh, world as well. Absolutely. One of the things that, that struck me as I was discussing this um, with my wife, who's in software development, who's a, an often um, guest on your show, was the, the analogs between strategy and guidance and concepts and, and software. And, and really, if you think about strategy and guidance and concepts, 
they are the software that runs the bureaucracy of DOD. There are a series of, of heuristics and if-then statements and prioritizations that helps this vast bureaucracy make the complex decisions on a daily basis without having to run every single major decision up to the secretary. And, and these documents, if, if done correctly and done in an agile way, can start their guidance on day one of an administration. But what we've done over the last arguably 30 years is we wait a year, we develop this sort of perfect four-year strategy review concept with this enormous process with a lot of you know, input from every part of the department. We go out and we gather data, then we issue forth like we're Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with these, you know, these tablets, these, these, these proclamations, which usually by that point are overcome by events. I mean, the classic case is the 2001 QDR, which came out three weeks after the events of 9-11, but it's not alone. If you look at the 2014 QDR, which, you know, basically was overcome by the reemergence of ISIS and the reemergence of Russia as a strategic competitor, you know, all of a sudden you've got all these reviews that are, that are fine in and of themselves, but the process to get there takes so long that they don't end up influencing DOD policy and DOD budgets and DOD capability development in the way that they're supposed to. And I think if you look at the 2018 NDS, it's another example of that. The NDS probably could have been finished sometime in mid to late 2017, and it could have come out early enough to have really meaningfully influenced the FY19 and FY20 budgets. And instead, what you had was kind of a glancing blow on those budgets and this promised masterpiece that never really came to fruition in 2020. And frankly, the NDS, you really can't see major shifts in investment priorities until FY 2021, which when you think about it, is the last budget guided ostensibly underneath that strategy. So that's really not the way we're going to keep up with Chinese weapons development and Chinese concepts development. Um, the converse of that, it strikes me, one potential bright spot here is a couple of months ago, Space Force released its first doctrine guidance and the guardian responsible for that came on this program and told me that's going to be a living document. That it's not gonna be set in stone and they're going to update it and, and evolve it over time. Is that a step in the right direction, at least that concept a step in the right direction, Chris? Absolutely, and I would also like to commend um, the Marine Corps under you know, General Berger. He came in from, um, from MAR4PAC with a lot of ideas about how the Marine Corps could better compete with China in the Pacific. And he married those ideas and concepts up quickly with war games and concept development that had been going on down at McCidic for you know, years, and in some cases decades, when we, when we talk about expeditionary base, base operations. And he very quickly put out guidance to his force that probably wasn't perfect at the time. It was quite good, but it wasn't perfect and he knew it, but he did it fast to reorient the Marine Corps quickly. And if you're going to be a leader of a large complex organization, you can't take two years to get your guidance out to them because they'll just keep moving on inertia. They'll keep doing what they've always been doing. And frankly, if we keep doing what we've always been doing, we won't keep pace with China. Um, I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. I don't, I'm reading between the lines, but you write toward the end of this piece, we must always remember that processes are a means to an end, not an end in themselves. And that ties, I think, with what you just said if we keep doing what we're doing, we're gonna keep getting what we've been getting, right? Absolutely, and I think you know, there's a, a fantastic piece out recently by the Hudson Institute, um, by Dan Pat and, and another fellow there about how we can reform PPVE. But I think when you look at the Pentagon processes, there's been a lot written on how to make acquisition, the 5,000.1 process more agile and more responsive to, to, to the demands of, of DOD. But what we haven't spent our time looking at is what comes upstream of that decision to buy something. How do we look at the world? How do we look at the strategic environment 
How do we make decisions? How do we devise concepts for how we deal with challenges and threats posed by China and Russia? And then rapidly transition those into requirement statements that, that become capabilities. And that is a place where I think that we're just ripe for, you know, to use a Silicon Valley term to continue the, the metaphor, we're ripe for disruption. We're ripe to make that process go faster because there's no reason other than sort of bureaucratic inertia, frankly, that those things have to take four-year, five-year time cycles. And until we can cut those time cycles down to months to single-digit years rather than years to, to you know, five-year fit-ups or, or decades, we're just not going to keep pace. And I think we have to let go of the concept of we're going to come down with a perfect strategy off of Mount Sinai and say, look, this is a good enough strategy. It conveys our top-level priorities. It gets what we need to get out into the hands of the bureaucracy, the services, the, the combatant commands, and then let's iterate on it. Much like you mentioned with Space Force, let's put this out, then get feedback and constantly update this document as need be. Chris, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Thanks so much, Francis. Great to have you. Find a link to his piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, new Space Force technology gains. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the path to making the force's most important tech more resilient. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Space Force will let U.S. allies borrow and test new navigation technology that adversaries can't jam or spoof. The new tech should help warfighters get a more reliable signal for GPS access. McKenna Young is a research assistant at the Aerospace Security Project Center for Strategic and International Studies. McKenna, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. This is just one example, as we talked a little bit uh, before we went on the air, about the Space Force upgrading its technology and providing new capabilities. What are some of the other areas where the Space Force is trying to do that? Yeah, so you know the Space Force right now is really just trying to, to grow its force. It's adding people um, from the other U.S. military branches. They're really just upgrading their equipment and communication lines. And and as you mentioned, um, this agreement, you know, they're really trying to work with allies to make sure we're all on the same page. We all have really good technology that's harder to attack. Um, and so we're just we're just really trying to make sure that that we're ready to go. Um, so this tech, the the story in uh, C4ISRnet is full of technology stuff that is, quite frankly, above my, over my head. Allies will be able to take receiver cards for ENCODE-ready military GPS user equipment technology for laboratory and field testing. What does the ally landscape look like for the Space Force? What is the benefit that they expect to derive from sharing this technology with allies? Yeah, so what we're seeing, you know, with this, this sharing with allies, it's a really great sign. It means that, you know, likely the, this U.S. military signal has the bandwidth to support allies and that we're, you know, eager to, to expand our users and make sure that our allies are all, you know, up to the same capabilities that we are. This new M code, it, it's not new really, but it's being used much more and they are finally, you know, they have 21 capable satellites with on this M code um, that have encrypted GPS. It's a much more secure um, system than than you know civilian GPS. So it's it's a really good sign that we're working with allies. It builds trust. Um, you know, it makes sure that we can count on our allies and they can count on us if there is a problem. Um, so you know, it, it's a really good sign. That means that we we're, we're confident in this capability and that we're happy to share it with others. The word that came to mind as I read this account is re, uh, resilience. Is that this is something that will last for both us and our allies. 
uh, just no matter what uh, an adversary might throw at it. Am I reading this the right way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this M code is, is touted to be an ultra secure, you know, a jam resistant signal, which is really important when we have, you know, our, our military working on these critical missions, you want to make sure that they're protected. And working with our allies is something that we've been seeing a lot more. You know, um, we actually have what we call a space threat assessment coming out in the next couple of days, which you know, we look at what all these countries are doing with their counter space weapons, and we're seeing that countries are testing with their allies more. Um, you know, France just held a space test where they tested satellites and the Space Force was involved in that. So we're seeing that, you know, countries are working with each other and making sure that we're all ready to support each other if a problem does arise in space. I won't ask you to reveal the contents of that be uh, report before it's ready for prime time. But more broadly, as you've been observing over the past months and years, what's the trend that you're seeing regarding that? What is driving that? Is it the capabilities of individual uh, partners and allies that they don't have something that somebody else has and so they form these alliances and collaborate on projects or is it just that this entire this entire landscape is so new and so nascent that people have not that countries have not had opportunities to build out yet it's a little bit of both. So, um, you know, th the U.S., for example, ha has been really involved in space for, for a long time. So we have a lot of great capabilities. And so a lot of that is, you know, helping our allies, these countries that don't have, um, you know, these longstanding space capabilities and making sure that, you know, if we need help, we can count on our allies and, and showing that, you know, we're ready to support them as well. Another item that, uh, that uh, came out this week is that the Space Force is looking, rethinking the way that it buys broadband. What's changing there, McKenna? Yeah, so the Space Force is looking more at, you know, using broadband from commercial companies, which is another really interesting development. Um, you know, it, it's a good sign that we think we can rely on commercial companies to, to provide this for the U.S. military. Um, you know, and it also is a good sign that likely these commercial companies are upping their security as well, um, that the Space Force will, will say, you know, you might not be thinking about being attacked because you don't work in the defense industry, but, but we do. So we want everyone to kind of up their defenses and make sure that we're all really secure. We have about a minute left, McKenna. What would you follow as both of these issues continue or, 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 or what do these issues touch in Space Force operations that you'll pay attention to? I think we're just seeing that the Space Force is really getting involved in a lot of these different ways, you know, working with our allies and working with U.S. commercial companies. It's a great sign that, you know, we're, we're confident in what we have and our capabilities and that we're just we're bringing everyone up, making sure that we're all compatible working with each other and that we just make sure we have the most secure and, and protected signals. McKenna Young, thanks very much for joining me again. It's great to have you back. Thank you so much. Up next, scaling the bug bounty program to stop the next big breach before it happens. Straight ahead on Government Matters, preparing for a vulnerability backlog. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on GovMatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS says all civilian agencies should start vulnerability disclosure programs. But asking the public to identify weak points could bring up more vulnerabilities than agencies are ready to respond to. Katie Masouris is founder and CEO of Ludus Security. She led the launch of the first bug bounty program at the Defense Department. She's writing about it in the Hill newspaper. Katie, thanks for coming on. 
What should the civilian agencies be doing that maybe DOD already has a head start on with the bug bounty programs like the ones you're involved with? That's a great question. Well, they should immediately start assessing their maturity and capabilities and finding all of the gaps in their people, process, and technology. And they should ask Congress for more resources. You write in this piece, one of my concerns is that any agency that includes too many targets in scope at once at the start of this program may have found that they've opened the floodgates. What's the risk of that for actually being able to solve problems, Katie? Well, if you look at the federal government who's currently struggling to investigate the solar winds and Microsoft Exchange hacks, a lot of those resources internally are shared resources with this vulnerability disclosure process. So if you think of it like a digestive system, things can get pretty messed up if you don't have uh, the appropriate resources ready to go. When you talk about resources, is that just money or is that also people and the governance that's required to execute these programs? It's a very specific process and the people involved need special training to be able to handle these vulnerabilities appropriately. So it's more about uh, getting the right cyber workforce in place, training them with the appropriate technology and the right way to respond to vulnerability reports and keeping those helpful hackers coming with bug reports. What's the training, uh, what's the training that works? What's the skill set that the people in government will need to be able to respond to what people find? You know, it's not just cybersecurity and engineering skills that folks need. They need detailed process-oriented skills. They need people skills. And this is a perfect opportunity to augment the cyber workforce of the United States government, which, you know, we're all shorthanded in the private sector as well. What do, what do you have, what do the, does the private sector not have, what does the government not have that they need, and how do we grow more of that? I know that's not the subject of your piece, but that strikes me as the underlying issue here, is that if we don't have enough people to handle these issues broadly, that's something that, that is, is a fundamental weakness. Well, certainly hacking skills come in handy, but knowing about those bugs and being able to hack into systems is pretty much half the battle. So we need folks who are willing to learn about defensive technology and some of what I call the dental hygiene of security. So it might not sound as exciting as hacking, but you know, myself starting out as a professional hacker, I assure you there are fulfilling jobs um, all across offense and defense. And those are the kinds of skills that we need ramped up in both the private sector and in the government. You make three recommendations in this piece, and that is one of them to uh, build a long-term comp comprehensive plan to train, attract, and retain high-skilled cyber professionals into the federal workforce. You specify federal workforce in the piece. Why is it important that those are people who work for the federal government and not who work for contractors and the government buys that service? Well, you can do some of these things with contractors. Certainly the initial triage can be done with contractors, but contractors aren't really going to be able to fully assess risk across the federal government like internal employees who are read into all of the weaknesses in the internal systems can do. And you need those folks to be highly trained and ready to go. And unfortunately, you know, we have a shortage of the cyber workforce in the in the uh, private sector. So in the federal government space, we deal with a huge pay disparity that I think this administration needs to address in order to attract the kinds of workers that should be working in the federal government level internally. Another of the recommendations in your piece is to begin gathering key performance data 
to inform a maturity assessment and gap analysis. What's the data that should that, that agencies should collect and where should it be assembled? Is there one place that all that information should be gathered so that it's it can be analyzed enterprise-wide? Well, some of the data that they should be gathering are things like what is what what does it take in terms of time to repair things? What is the mean time to repair? Um, how long does it take them to address issues that they scan for themselves? Um, do they actually have the ability to scan for vulnerabilities themselves or are they relying on the public, which is a super inefficient way to, to find out about this information? And then as far as who should be collecting this information, well, DHS CISA is currently being set up to, to perform, perform a central role in the vulnerability disclosure process and numerous other government cybersecurity processes. So I would suggest adding more resources there. Third item that you're um, suggesting is that Congress should provide the appropriate budget resources. We talked about money earlier in our conversation, directly informed by those maturity gap reports. How does Congress link those two together? How do you direct the money to the right place? Well, each agency is going to have different needs. It's going to depend on what their attack surface looks like, how many resources they already have in place, and how spent those resources are. So as each agency goes through a vulnerability maturity assessment and gap analysis, each one of them will have different needs and different recommendations to ask for con from Congress. Katie Masouris, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. You can find a link to that piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to 58671. Back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.